pre-sermon reading is from Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives hosts in his own home, sinners, and eats with them. So Jesus told, this, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is a joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, um, did you notice the repeated words in the story, um, particularly the word rejoice or joy, and joy and all, all its derivatives? I mean, I, I hope you noticed that they were highlighted. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> And so, if you didn't, you know, it's okay. Maybe, you know, maybe we got some, some color blindness or whatever. It's fine. Um, no, but joy is an energetic word, isn't it? Um, joy, when you hear the word joy, you know something, uh, something lively is happening, right? Something lively has happened. There's, there's a, a fullness of life to some degree. Even though, honestly speaking, joy itself isn't a source of energy as much as it's a word that describes the manifestation of energy. Whether as an expression used like rejoicing or in its possession, the word joyful. When the word joy is used, maybe, maybe just intuitively, we assume that there's a source of power that's fueling it. That there's something that caused the joy to come to the surface, to come out. Think about it. Think about the most joyous moments in your own life. No matter how grand they were or how unspectacular the circumstances. Didn't they result from some energy deep within you coming to the surface? Something felt striking at your core that spilled into tears of joy, laughter of joy, praises of joy. Joy was a response to circumstances, whether benign as a sunrise or life-changing as a clean bill of health. The news or nuances lighting a hidden source of fuel that bursts into free, exuberant worship. A source that I'd be willing to wager, even as um, we sit in uh, this moment of joy's memory, re-energizes you. Just the thought of that sunrise that, that turned to worship, that news that you received that, that, that turned into exaltation, that just sense of well-being that turned into praise. Experiences of joy, and even more so a life of joy, is a connection to a source of power, an energy that electrifies our hearts and enlightens our souls. Whether it be in a passing moment or in steady pulses, Joy shines forth when we find ourselves taking hold of and sharing in that source of energy. Jesus' double parable of the lost sheep and the coin is a revelation of this source of power, the energy uh, from which joy is experienced and expressed. That's what these parables are about. I mean, it's clear, right? Rejoice, joy is a word that seems to be on the tip of Jesus' tongue at the center, literally, of the, the actual structure of the story. 
But not just any source of joy, but the source of heaven's joy. The joy of God's kingdom. The kingdom at hand. Close enough for us to grab and to grab hold of us. A joy Jesus would later tell his followers and friends that he desires for them to share in, to be filled with. So here is what we're going to do this afternoon. We're going to listen to Jesus' story with a little context brought out and then process what is revealed together in smaller groups. So we're going to actually get some discussion time together, if I can go fast enough. We'll get to the smaller groups things in a minute, but for now what I want you to know is this, just to kind of set our minds and kind of understand, I think, what, what's happening, right? So probably most of us tend to think, and this isn't necessarily completely wrong, but that parables have a meaning, and that most likely that meaning is a moral meaning that we are meant to read Jesus' stories, find out what they mean, and apply what they mean to our lives, the moral to live by. And there is some truth to that, but the reality of Jesus' stories, the depths of Jesus' stories, is much greater than any kind of singular moral that can come from, from them. Um, and so my goal today is not to help lead us into, um, draw us into the story to find out what the moral is so that we know what, what moral to live by. But rather, this is what my prayer has been all week, that for you and I, that we might recognize the revelatory truth that one way or another, by God's grace, we live out this story every day in our lives. In other words, that Jesus' story of the kingdom, this story in particular, but all the stories that we're telling this, this, this epiphany season are the stories of our lives, not just stories of morals, but the actual stories that we live. All right, so here's the story. Jesus says in Luke, or Luke says in Luke 15, chapter 1, or verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, The man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told him this singular parable, not two parables, one parable, two stories. One parable, two stories. As we know in Jesus' stories, story of Jesus' life, some people think, or some people have, sorry, have taken him up on his inaugural offer to repent and believe the gospel. The good news. That indeed, time is up, God's kingdom is here. That some people actually believe that life on our own terms is over. That life in God's life is where we actually find ourselves. The problem is, and what's true then and true now probably, is the ones who should have been most ready to grab hold of the truth, reaching out to them, to celebrate the truth with free exuberant worship, were the ones most skeptical of the message and the messenger, Jesus himself. On the other hand, the ones least prepared by all cultural, moral, and religious gradations to receive God with us, Emmanuel, were the ones who found themselves received to Jesus' own table. Something in the Pharisees, those who diligently ordered their lives around the things of God and expectations of God's arrival and action, something in the scribes who's devoted, who devoted their livelihood to knowing and helping others keep the words of God in their daily lives, Something within these persons, hearts and homes, disconnected them from the source of energy that the undeniable betrayers, the tax collectors, and the occupational outcasts, the sinners, were experiencing firsthand. And I believe this grieved Jesus, and I think it still does. So Jesus told a double story to clear up the muddied perspective of those missing out. Admittedly, a story that was backhandedly offensive at first and then straight, straightforwardly offensive as it went, went forward, but offensive to their egos and to their ideas of God. And in so doing, Jesus also defends the joy of the gospel. He validates the good news for the many who felt, I'm sure, 
unworthy of such pure emotion as joy. The many who felt unworthy of it, Jesus defends. Those who felt it was owed to them, Jesus offends. In other words, this double parable was told to offend one group into seeing themselves and God differently, while at the same time encouraging another group to see the certainty of the source of what they experience with Jesus every day. As an old friend of mine is known to say on occasion, are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? We know where we're going? Great. If you don't, you'll catch up. It's fine. Now, on to the double story with a bit of context. So, Jesus says this story. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? There's a lot in this first sentence, this first question that Jesus asked. Most of us, would, we would think the answer should be um, all of us, but let me tell you the contextually what was being played out in this and see if our answer would still be the same. First, Pharisees and scribes were all males. Women could not be, be either one. So a person, and secondly, a person with a hundred sheep would be a person of wealth and thus have a place of prominence in the community. And at, and at least by many groups, specifically by these groups, the scribes and Pharisees would be seen, like the rich young ruler was, as godly or blessed by God. So when they hear a man having a hundred sheep among you, who among you, what man among you, what man of you having a hundred sheep, Jesus begins the story when they hear these words with an image his listeners would recognize themselves to be or someone who they would aspire to be. Specifically in this culture, a person who is, who is acceptable, a man, the highest level of the culture in this culture, right? Successful, respected, and, whom, and one whom God favors. What man among you having a hundred sheep? Who among you is successful, respected, and God favors. But, as Jesus' custom, he twists things up with the little word he. The wealthy owner of a hundred sheep, says Jesus, he has lost one of them. Which implies this successful, successful, respectable person of God's favor is doing the work of a shepherd. Which, by their cultural and religious customs, made him ritualistically unclean, someone who could not enter the presence of God whenever or however he desired, would be someone who had to go through a whole litany of things just to get into the outer courts, much less the inner courts, into the presence of God. On top of that, this person who initially the listeners thought themselves to be, a respectable, um, you know, successful person of God's favor, he is taking responsibility for something gone wrong, which was and still is in the, in the Eastern cultures culturally not the norm. As one Middle Eastern scholar points out, it says, when an accident or misfortune is reported, like a lost sheep, by a third party. The passive is always used unless the speaker deliberately wants to blame the person in the story. Thus, the person who missed the train says, the train went from me. I didn't miss the train. The train left early, right? The waiter says, the dish fell, not I dropped the dish. This is how my kids talk at home, right? I did nothing. The thing did it, right? Um, my, my plate did not end up underneath my bed. Like, I didn't put my plate underneath my bed. It just crawled under there. It just ended up there, right? That never happens to you, really. It's okay. What the listeners would have expected to hear was what Jesus said in a similar but different story in Matthew's gospel. When he's talking about a shepherd who said, if one of the sheep has gone astray, 
That's what they would have expected. But Luke doesn't write it that way. Luke doesn't say the sheep left. He says the shepherd lost. The sheep didn't leave, but the shepherd lost. So the person Jesus asked those listening to identify with is a successful, respectable person with whom God favors, but who willfully puts himself in a lowly occupation, who operates with meekness and humility to fulfill his responsibilities. In other words, he's no one quite like themselves. He's not actually them. You're not actually, we're not actually meant to hear the parable as ones who are the shepherd. He's not asking the question, who of you is like this? His question actually says, none of you are like this. Not very many of you, especially culturally and religiously at that time, were conditioned to aspire even to be a person like this. Everything that they knew about what God wanted and who God wanted them to be, who they thought they should be in God's eyes, this person somehow offends that. Somehow is the paradox of that. Yes, he's wealthy, but he's a shepherd. Yes, he's respectable and seen with God's favor, yet he's taking the blame for the thing that, that, that happened. He's taking responsibility for what, what was most likely just a sheep that went off. That seems completely opposite, and it would have felt opposite for those who are hearing the story. So that means, at least to start, Jesus is saying that we are not, you are not, that person. Which means that we're something else in the story. We're not the shepherd. Even though he starts the, the story asking us to, to think of ourselves as who among you. He, the point is, none of us is this person. So we must be somewhere else. But before we get to our place in the story... Jesus begins to pull the curtain back on the source of this different person's energy. For the rich, meek, God-honored, lowly, yet esteemed shepherd does something utterly irrational on the surface. He leaves the 99 in the open country. Some translations say wilderness. He doesn't leave them in their sheep pens. He lets them roam, apparently. All for the purpose to embark on an utterly committed, until he finds it, search for a singular lost sheep. But what happens when you leave 99 sheep in the wilderness? You return to find 99 lost sheep. Sheep don't hang around together just because they're together. They tend to spread out. They tend to go their own ways in their own little bunches, especially if there's not a shepherd there to keep them and protect them. If they're not in their pens, if they don't know what the boundaries are. They're in the open country. So it's an utterly irrational move. Jesus describes no one like them doing what none of them would do. Jesus' opening question, by now it should be obvious, is somewhat rhetorical. And it reveals an absurd, nearly illogical source of energy that drives the elevated shepherd to his task. A source of energy that would have him act in an apparently foolish manner, at least at this junction in the story. But the story doesn't end there. And Jesus, so Jesus continues. And he says, and when he has found it, the sheep, the lost sheep, this Wealthy shepherd lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. The esteemed shepherd is successful in his determined endeavor, as he knew he would be. He finds the lost sheep either grazing in some other pasture, or more likely, and this is what happens especially in, in, um, in the type of country in the, in the area where Jesus was, um, uh, was telling this story, when the sheep realizes it's by itself separated and alone, it curls up, tries to kind of hide down as low as it can, and just sends out a bleat. Just a calling to its flock, to its mom, to its shepherd. It realizes it's alone and it curls up and just makes a noise, hoping that it will be heard. Either way, 
Here's what happens. A single sheep is not going to be herded home. Despite all the little pictures that we've had seen growing up in Sunday school, one shepherd, a shepherd leading a single sheep is, never happens, <laughs> or rarely so. It's not going to be coaxed to over open and rocky terrain, especially if it's frightened and afraid, even if it's done so by a familiar voice. No, a single sheep, lost sheep, won't follow like a dog. It has to be carried. It won't get up and move on its own. It won't follow on command like, like your, your best friend will. It has to be carried. And it's a burdensome task that will cost the shepherd time, important time, daylight time, time of safety, all those kind of things. It will cost him vigor, energy, and it will cost him pain to carry a sheep on his back, a sheep that probably doesn't want to be on its back, on his back. Still, the honored outcast rejoices in his labor, knowing what awaits his efforts. The same source of energy that compelled him to act absurdly to run into the wilderness after the one sheep spills over into the necessary labor of complete restoration. And the joy of complete restoration is the climax of the story. Jesus says in verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. That was lost. Home. That's where the shepherd and the lost sheep return. Not the open country. You notice that? Which means that others were helping the lordly shepherd. That others were caring and tending to the 99 who had not been lost. This would have been the assumption of all the peasants present, aware of how their fellow sinners, the unclean by trade, operated. They knew this is how the, the poor in the community operated. No one actually did their labor completely isolated and alone. There had always been others there to help. Even if, at the same time, the proud, who are prone to keep the, such people at a distance, miss the collective efforts that are always necessary for such rescue. As is often the case, there is a community of invested persons in Jesus' stories, quietly behind the scenes, only occasionally making an appearance. Ones, the ones who, whose own well-being and joy are intertwined with the diligent shepherd and his sheep. A kingdom cast, if you will. At least that's what Jesus calls them in verse 7. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is more joy in heaven, in God's country, in, in God's citizenship, in all those who find their being in God's being, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The neighbors are the kingdom of heaven. The moral of the story, if we were to stop right here, seems pretty straightforward, wouldn't it? Jesus and God's kingdom values far, those far from home who are brought back home more than those who never left home. Doesn't it kind of read like that? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's only if we stop with part one of the double parable. But Jesus doesn't, luckily. And so he continues. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I had lost. Listen, at this point, Jesus has given up uh, trying to, um, um, to entice the Pharisees into, and scribes into seeing themselves as this person. He straight up says a woman, who, which would be none of them. And he doesn't say a woman among them, because there was no women among them. But there are women at Jesus' table, just as those with lowly and outcast occupations are in society, like tax collectors. 
So once again, Jesus offends one group and encourages another by identifying the example to follow, one like them but different, with the least. This would have been a wildly offensive statement for Jesus to make, already with the first part of the story, having shown them that they are not this person. This person is different than them. And now he continues the story with someone who's even more different than them. Similar to the paradox of a wealthy shepherd, a woman with ten coins in a peasant village where the economy functioned by the bartering of goods and services and not cash is an anomaly. For a peasant woman to have in her possession ten coins, she would be perceived as someone who's blessed. In Jesus' story, just like the, the, shepherd of the wealthy shepherd, she is equally as meek. For she has taken responsibility for what she's lost, for losing something of tremendous value. Not just monetarily. Again, cash was rare, so it would have been, it would have been um, of high value. But it's also culturally. Because most likely her coins were on a necklace given for her dowry. Most likely this is what she received as, a, as evidence of her value, of the wealth of how much was given for her. This was something that, that made her, in some ways, distinguishable. Who she was, like marked off her, her specialty in some sort of way. But like the shepherd, she searches diligently and determinately for what is lost, burning precious, costly lamp oil in the light of day, which would have been, again, in a peasant village, and, and something you don't do. You don't light a lamp when there's light outside. But she lights a lamp in order to see what's going on in the house doing the back-breaking work of sweeping down. Notice he says sweeping down the floor, not digging up. Most of the floors would have been earthen floors. And so instead of taking a shovel and going and digging around, she's trying to sweep. Can you imagine with a broom that's made of just, of just straw, trying to sweep down dirt, layers of dirt? What kind of back-breaking work that would, that would require? All for the sake of what was lost. But unlike the sheep, what she lost has not gone far but it's still actually in the home. She knows it's in the house, for she searches nowhere else. It's never actually left the house. She knows it's there. And when she finds it, she too invites the hidden community, the angels of God, his created beings, his heralds of good news, the ones invested in her efforts and joy into the fullness of her joy. Jesus says in verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, a joy expressed, but this time, not in contrast, that directly offends self-righteousness. Not a joy, a more joy than non-repentance, but an inclusive joy of those already home, even if lost under the daily buildup of dust and dirt. Listen, I said at the beginning of this double parable of the lost sheep and coin is a revelation of a source of power, an energy from which God's joy is experienced and expressed. An energy that fuels the absurd and costly efforts of one like us, but different, to search and find what is lost. An energy that fuels exuberant and expansive celebration when what is lost is found by the one who searches. While joy is the word that stands out, it's another word hidden from the earth's foundation that is the source of joy's manifestation. That's love. It's all over the parable, it's just not said. William Mason, a Manson, a... Uh, um, a New Testament scholar says it, I think, well. He says, The characteristic feature of these two parables is not so much the joy over the repentant sinner as the divine love that goes out to seek the sinner before he or she repents. Did you catch that? 
Did you catch it in the story? Both, in both cases, Jesus tells all those listening, not just of the love that motivated the seeker to find what was lost, but the joy comes from the lost being found, and he uses the word and being found, repent. But here's the thing. The sheep didn't turn towards home, nor did the coin uncover itself. And yet Jesus called that repentance. In the story of repentance, no one actually confesses anything. No one actually turns and says anything. No one actually makes any efforts to get back to where they were from. What if, what if, at least in part, the good news that life on our own is up, that God's life is here, that the kingdom of time is up, God's kingdom is here, is that it reaches out to find and grab us even before we could reach out to him. What if that's the part of the good news? That the thing that we're after is actually after us first and foremost. Both lost things required someone to grab hold of them, to find them in the wilderness in the darkened corners, someone fueled by an energy that would compel them to entirely give of themselves to ensure that they were restored to their caring community and proper place of honor. But all that was required of them was to be lost. All that was required of them was to be lost. Perhaps that's what Jesus hoped for the Pharisees and scribes. They would simply let themselves be lost, lose their way, and find that the way has swept away the dirt and carried them back into the full light of the home that they were already in. Perhaps that is Jesus' encouragement to all those who receive or receive to his table, to know that they wound up there through his energy and efforts, his love and not theirs. And that means his energy, his love and efforts will keep them there all the more. And for both, both were true. If they could just believe that such good, such news is actually good and at hand. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus. I pray over these next few minutes, Father, as we move from hearing the words of Jesus into discussing the words of Jesus. Father, that you would just fill us with your spirit that we had let ourselves just sit for even just a second in a story that we probably all really know really well, and maybe even afresh tonight, um, let your Spirit speak to us what is true, maybe anew, maybe again, and that together, Father, Lord, we might build each other up in love to all that the love of Christ has called us into. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do. For about the next 13 minutes, which is for me impressive that we're going to give you 13 minutes to do this, right? You guys might not be proud, but I am. Um, We're going to talk about this in smaller groups. This parable is told to offend. This parable is told to encourage. This parable is told to invite us to believe that the good news is actually good and that it's here. So those are going to be our prompts. Get into groups of three to four. And just talk about what was offensive. What was offended? Your ego, your ideas of God. What was enlightening? What was encouraging? What was there to to help ground you in the things maybe you already know? And then what might look different if you actually believe this story that Jesus told was a true story? Not a story with a moral, but a story true to your life, to our life. And isn't just a story about 
repenting, but is a story that our lives are lived with the kingdom that comes after us. And that part of what repentance is, the beginning of repentance, really is just admitting that we're lost. What if we believe that? So, groups of three or four, and then talk amongst yourselves. And then we'll take communion together in just a few minutes. Don't everybody hurry at once. <laughs>